Now, the movies about Indiana Jones put archaeology on the map. You may have seen those originals, especially the first three. And so instead of tedious excavations in the middle of nowhere, suddenly archaeologists were action heroes. And even though we know that real archaeologists don't have the same adventures that Harrison's Ford character did, it makes for entertaining and fun movies. Though I must admit I wasn't particularly impressed with the the second movie of the three. Now, if you're an Indiana Jones movie fan, you may have picked up that often his adventures start because of an ancient text or an inscription found on an artefact. Take Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the third uh, instalment, the third movie of the original three. And near the beginning, Donovan invites Indiana Jones to study an ancient text that reveals an amazing treasure. So let's have a look at that now. Have a look over here. This might interest you. Well, it's sandstone, Christian symbol, early Latin text, mid-12th century, I should think. That was our assessment as well. Where'd this come from? My engineers unearthed it in the mountain region north of Ankara while excavating for copper. Can you translate the inscription? Quis quis bibit aquam. Who drinks the water I shall give him, says the Lord. We'll have a spring inside him welling up for eternal life. Let them bring me to your holy mountain in the place where you dwell across the desert and through the mountain to the canyon of the crescent moon to the temple where the cup that where the cup that holds the blood of Jesus Christ resides forever the holy grail Dr. Jones the chalice used by Christ during the last supper so the adventure begins The adventure begins because of an ancient text that the archaeologists had discovered. And today we're going to turn to our own ancient text, but a text that wasn't written on a sandstone block in Latin, but texts that were written originally in ancient Hebrew and Greek, our Old and New Testaments. You'll see today Peter references those who searched the ancient scriptures, just like Indiana Jones searched that script, and they followed their own adventure. They followed their own adventure as God revealed to them fresh word, and they laid this alongside the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. So this morning, we're going to follow something of that journey, our own archaeological adventure, as we focus on three areas that Peter will bring to light. And those three areas are what was searched for, what was found, and then what happened next. So in these ancient scriptures, what was searched for, what was found, and then what happened next. And you'll pick this up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, where we left off last week, and we have this scripture passage here. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest of care. And so here, front and centre, we have both the treasure hunters and the treasure. 
So who were hunting for this great treasure? Well, it was the prophets of old. Prophets from ancient days, even in Peter's time. They were the Indiana Jones, so to speak. But what about the treasure? What was the treasure that these prophets were intently searching for? It wasn't the Holy Grail. It was this salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets searched intently and with the greatest of care. You see, God's salvation looked very different in the time of the prophets than it does now. But a change was coming, a seismic change, a heaven-shattering change was coming. And God signaled this to his prophets, that, a old, that the old way was going to pass and a new way of salvation coming. And so how did God signal to these ancient prophets? Well, he gave them a revelation, hints and clues. It was like God was giving them a treasure map that needed to be deciphered with the new salvation as the treasure. The X marks the spot. And so these old prophets, they searched intently. They searched by taking the new revelation that God gave them and then searching the ancient scriptures that they already had. And so we can imagine Zechariah. Zechariah was one of the last prophets who received um, prophecies from God or God's word. And so we're going to track one of Zechariah's prophecies. It covers three chapters. I'm not going to read the whole three chapters. What I'm going to do is pull out those parts that reference the new salvation. And this is the revelation that Zechariah received. Now, because he was one of the latter prophets, the rest of the Old Testament had been written, all of Moses and Isaiah and all the history. So he had access to that. But this is the fresh revelation from his day. And so we have here in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And then later on in the same prophecy in chapter 13, verse 1, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So these are the hints and the clues that Zechariah is getting about the, the new salvation that was to come. didn't stop there. The very next verse. On that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord God. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming. And finally, verse 9 of chapter 14. And the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. And so there were all these hints and clues that were coming of the new salvation, that special day. And so what was Zechariah to do with these words? Well, he was faithful. So he wrote them down, and then he declared them to the Israelites in the temple and in the marketplace. He faithfully discharged his responsibility by sharing God's word and challenging God's people. But it didn't stop there. He didn't just file away his scroll. What he did is he then got the Old Testament scrolls and his new revelation, and then we were told that by, one, by Peter that he searched intently and with great care. 
And he was searching for what this salvation would look like. And he had some focuses, and 1 Peter tells us what the focus of Zechariah and the other prophets were. In verse 11, just before that, the prophets searched intently and with the greatest of care. Then verse 11, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. So what were the prophets looking for? Well, they were looking for the time of this new salvation. God would say, in that day, in that day, and describe the new salvation. So they were looking for the signs. What would that day look like? What would be the signs? And what would this new salvation look like? So Zechariah and these later prophets, they scoured the Old Testament looking for hints and clues. And the Spirit of Christ was in them, not only to give them the words to speak, but to help them with their search. And not only did they discover what this new salvation would look like, it confused them. It had them stumped. And verse 11 tells us what they found and why they were confused. The rest of verse 11, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ and then was pointing, when... He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Can you see what they found out? They found out two pairs of factors that related to this salvation. The first thing they found out was the Spirit of Christ was pointing to the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is Hebrew for anointed one. So Messiah means God's anointed. It turns out that Christ is Greek for the word anointed. It means exactly the same. So Messiah and Christ are interchangeable. They are equivalent titles. So the Spirit of Christ was pointing out himself that he would be coming to the ancient, prophet, to the ancient prophets. So the second pair of information we're told about this Messiah is that he would suffer and then be glorified. So, whatever this new salvation would look at, it would center around a Messiah, and this Messiah would first suffer, and then be glorified. And this is what got them stumped. How could this Messiah, the King of Kings, both suffer and be glorified? Well, the Spirit of Christ made it clear to them that this would happen. And so you could imagine that Zechariah, he knew that the Lord Messiah will be king over all the earth. That's verse 9. So that's what he was told. And so the second thing he was told was in verse 10 of chapter 12 was that they will look on me, the Messiah, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And this is why he was stumped in this prophecy. Because on the one hand, was told by God and told the people that Messiah would be king over all the earth. And then on the other hand, he told the people that the Messiah, well, we'd mourn for him because he was dead. And so Zechariah uh, took this contradiction, apparent contradiction, and he searched intently with great care, we're told in 1 Peter, to try and make sense of this salvation. And he, imagine how he come across Isaiah 53. Now in Zechariah's day... Isaiah had already been dead for 200 years, and so when he picked up the scroll of Isaiah, he was already looking at an ancient text just like we do. 
And so you can imagine Zechariah having, having the fresh revelation that the Messiah would be pierced and that we would mourn for him. Imagine him finding Isaiah 53, verse 5, written 200 years before Zechariah. But he, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. You can imagine the lights going on for Zechariah. The Messiah was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then a few verses on in verse 9, the Messiah was signed a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And see him piecing together the puzzle. He had a fresh revelation that the Messiah would be pierced and that we would mourn. And this aligns for what he's found in Isaiah 53. But what about the prophecy of the Messiah reigning? What, how's that going to work? I mean, he had that passage where there would only be one God. That was his first revelation. And the Messiah would be king. Well, again, searching the scripture with great care, intently, coming across Daniel 7.14. Again, in Zechariah's day, Daniel had already been dead for a couple of hundred years, and so this was already considered an ancient text. Daniel 7.14. The Messiah, he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Zechariah is on a, on a journey, and he's piecing together his fresh revelation that says that the Messiah will be king and reigns, and then he comes across Daniel's that says that not only will he reign, but we will worship him. And so as Zechariah and the other prophets kept searching the scripture, their fresh revelation with the ancient text, they kept coming across both the glory of the Messiah and his suffering. And in doing so, they built up a picture, a picture of a suffering king who would bring in God's new and wonderful salvation. And in doing this, we're told they were not just serving themselves, but they were doing this for us. We see this again as we turn to Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to them, that's the ancient prophets, the treasure hunters, it was revealed to them that they were not only serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. So as Zechariah was having his fresh revelation and laying that aside, uh, Isaiah and Daniel, it wasn't just for his benefit. He was serving us by doing that work. So how was he serving us? Well, verse 12 points to what happened next. And what did happen? Well, after Zechariah and the final prophets, there was a 400-year gap, about four centuries from the last messianic prophecy until when the Messiah came. And in that time, speculation was rife and it was misleading because not only the prophets, but the people were stumped. How can a conquering king suffer and die? And because the prophecies pointing to the Messiah's suffering were only few in number, and because the number of prophecies talking about the Messiah being a conquering king were overwhelming. People chose to put the suffering aside and focus on a Messiah who would come and conquer. And so in Jesus' day, 
everybody was looking for a king of royal lineage who would rise up and throw out the hated Roman conquerors, set up his throne in Jerusalem, and Israelites would be his favoured people. And while they were looking for a conquering king, Jesus was born to humble parents in a nowhere town in a forgotten part of the Roman Empire. And while Jesus was fulfilling many of the prophecies, many of the prophecies like Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Nothing about conquering the Romans there. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Nothing about reigning victorious there. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And while Jesus was fulfilling prophecies like this, most, if not everybody, were missing the point, including Jesus' disciples. You see, they were expecting Jesus to take the throne and reign and to set them, the twelve, up as his favoured officials, his royal courtiers. But they did not realise there needed to be a cross before the crown. Even Peter, who wrote this letter, he missed what the prophets had discovered. And we may remember the story well when Jesus' ministry was at its height and he asked his disciples, Who do you think I am? And Peter confidently replied, You are the Messiah. But then look what happened next. Are you familiar with what happened straight away? From being declared that, uh, to be the Messiah, Jesus then described how he must suffer. And so we pick this up in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter, who wrote this letter that we're looking at, rebuked Jesus. Now why? Because the idea of a suffering king was too hard for Peter to fathom. He had bought in to the assumptions of the age that the Messiah would come only as a conquering king and had put away the suffering prophecies to the side. You see, even though the earlier prophets had done their work well, even though the earlier prophets guided by the Spirit of Christ pointed clearly that the Messiah must suffer and die, even Peter missed the point. And all this, all of the time and the circumstances, the, and what the angels longed to look to, came to a head on Resurrection Sunday. And for we, we may, again, know the story of those two dejected disciples who left Jerusalem and were on the road to the village of Emmaus. And then a stranger came up to join them. It was Jesus, but they were kept from recognising Jesus. And they explained to the stranger how upset they were, how they were devastated with the death of Jesus, their master. And then Jesus, after listening, said this in Luke 24, and this is where all of the searching of the prophets for hundreds of years before comes together in these words of Jesus. Luke chapter 24, verse 25. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? All that work that the prophets had done before had been to explain exactly this. And then, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to him what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, all the searching by Zechariah, by Isaiah and the prophets, all that seeking intently and with great care comes together on the road as Jesus makes it clear that this new and unexpected salvation has come through his death and resurrection, through his suffering and his glory. And the good news is this. This is the very gospel that Peter says was preached to the original readers of his letter and was preached to us today. For the true and the better salvation that the prophets searched intently and with great care, the same salvation that the prophets longed to look into was proclaimed freely in Peter's day and is proclaimed freely today. Four, I was chosen before creation. I have been crucified with Christ. All my sins are forgiven. I am privileged to know the one in whom all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge are hidden and I will spend eternity enjoying him. That's the salvation that I experience. And that's the salvation that you can experience too. Let me ask this. Do you know that you were chosen before creation? Do you know that you have been crucified with Christ? Do you know the joy of having your sins forgiven? Do you know the confidence, have with confidence, know that you will spend all eternity with your dear Lord? This is the new salvation that Jesus brought in through his suffering and his glorification. And the same salvation is open to everyone here who is listening today. And so what are we going to do with all this? What's our take home for this morning? Well, a couple of things. First of all, today is the day of salvation. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord, have you not invited Christ into your life, if you've not experienced salvation that the angels even today still long to look into, then today you can be saved. You can invite Christ into your life. And there'll be some people up the front here that will just love to pray for you if you'd like to do that. Or you can always come and talk to me and ask questions and I'm happy to chat and to pray. That's the first take-home. Second take-home too is to, be, is to be encouraged to follow the example of the ancient prophets and the angels. For we have access to the same scriptures that they had and the New Testament. We have both the Old and the New Testament. We have the ancient scriptures that can set us on an adventure of discovery. Many of us, if not all of us, have a Bible at home. In fact, if we're asked and you thought about it, I'm sure we have multiple copies of Bibles at home. We have that opportunity. And some of those Bibles are well-worn. And that's a good thing. Spurgeon rightly said, I love this quote, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. It's true, isn't it? Isn't it true? So some of us have well-worn Bibles at home and other of us may have Bibles that are hardly opened at all to our shame. For oh, how the prophets would have loved to have what we can hold in our hands. 
And oh, how the angels still long to look into these things of our salvation. And so for those of us who read the word regularly, we need to be encouraged. For though the lists can be far from inspiring, and though the prophets at times do say some very interesting things, puzzling things, when we spend time in God's word, he is feeding our soul. When we spend time in God's word, he is nourishing our inner relationship with him. Jesus himself, quoting his father, quoting the Old Testament, said this, Men and women shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quoting the Old Testament where God said those words. So be encouraged if you are a regular reader of God's word. And for those of us who haven't picked up the Bible for a while and feel just guilty thinking about it, we may think about reading God's word and then we just feel guilty about actually picking the Bible up. Not only be encouraged, but be challenged. For God longs for you to spend time in his word. For as you do, you spend time in the presence of God. As you spend time in God's word, you are spending time in the presence of the living God. So why not set yourself a goal? Why not read through 1 Peter this week? If you were to read 1 Peter, how long do you think it would take to read? 20 to 25 minutes from start to finish. Probably a little less. What about the Gospel of Mark? Such a good read, it's full of narrative, it's fast moving. How long do you think it would take to read the Gospel of Mark? Start to finish, hour and a half. That's doable, isn't it? Hour and a half. Break it up into maybe four or five sittings and, and it might be 20 minutes of reading. Anyway, challenge yourself. If you've, if you've left God's Word on the shelf and you're not sure where to start, Set yourself some goals. Start reading regularly and feeding yourself, nourishing yourself in God's word. Because we have in our hand the greatest of all treasures, a treasure that the prophets searched intently and with the greatest of care to unravel that great mystery, a greater mystery than Indiana Jones seeking the Holy Grail, a greater mystery, the mystery of our salvation, a salvation freely offered to us who least deserve it, and the salvation of which even angels long to look into. Let's pray.